John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18 this morning. This morning, oh, what a morning. This morning. Has there ever been a morning like this Sunday morning? Resurrection Sunday morning. Could there ever be a more beautiful morning than the morning when Jesus' followers who had loved him so much in his life and been so devastated by his death that they discovered to their utter surprise and delight that he's alive again? Has there ever been a better morning than the morning or the afternoon or the evening when we first encountered the risen Jesus. The Jesus who is God become flesh, come down to live among us. The Jesus who shows us what God is really like and what a true human being is really supposed to be. The Jesus who loves like no one else loves, who offers us life like no one else can, like nowhere else we can find life. The Jesus who has the power to set us free from what binds us, to heal us from what's broken in us, to cleanse us from what's stained and soiled in us. The Jesus who we just remembered on Friday endured rejection, being spat upon, struck, mocked, betrayed, and abandoned. The Jesus who was beaten bloody, hung on a cross, and placed on a cold slab of a tomb for you and for me. Oh, what a beautiful morning is the morning that we discover that that Jesus is wonderfully alive, risen anew in power to inaugurate a brand new reality for our world. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel leads us into that beautiful morning. We see much of it through the eyes of a woman named Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala, a town on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. The Gospel writer Luke tells us that Mary was a well-to-do woman. She had followed Jesus faithfully during his life and, in fact, helped to fund Jesus' ministry out of her means. No doubt, part of her gratitude to Jesus was due to the fact that Jesus had set her free, set her free from a living hell, Luke tells us, when Jesus cast seven demons out who had been tormenting her. Mary of Magdala was also a courageous woman, staying at the cross to the bitter end after many of Jesus' other disciples had fled. And now she was the first human being to see and to embrace the risen Christ. Fortunate Mary. It was to her, not to Jesus' own mother, that the risen Jesus chose first to reveal himself. It was to her, not to Peter, not to James or John, that Jesus first gave the privilege of proclaiming the Easter gospel, the good news that Jesus is alive and with him a whole new reality has dawned. It's because of Mary that we have the story this morning. Incidentally, this is one of the the factors that lends authenticity to the story that was read this morning. As you know, there are many who maintain that the first Christians made up the resurrection. 
But the fact that all four gospel accounts agree that it was Mary and several other women who were the first to discover the empty tomb and the first to encounter the risen Christ make it virtually impossible that Jesus' followers made this story up. Why? Because in the days that the gospel accounts were written, a woman's testimony was not worth much. In fact, it was not even admissible as evidence in court. Sorry, ladies, we can be glad that times have changed. But in that day, men like the apostles trying to convey their message about Jesus to a male-dominated world would never have cited women as their primary witnesses. As being first at the empty tomb, first to meet the risen Jesus. Unless, of course, that's how it really happened. So preacher Daryl Johnson concludes, the only explanation for the early church telling the Easter story the way it does is that this is the way it actually happened. By the way, I owe a number of the insights I want to share with you this morning to Johnson. What we have then in chapter 20 of John is, in the words of Leslie Newbegin, another very insightful reader of John's gospel, an authentic memory preserved and handed on by Mary herself. I want to invite you this morning into the story that Mary has to tell. As John later was inspired by the Holy Spirit, we believe, to record it for us. So let's go back together into the garden, back to the tomb, to experience scene by scene what took place there that beautiful morning. John tells us that Mary came to the tomb on the first day of the week. The first day. Not the third day after Jesus' death, as we might expect John to put it. After all, Jesus had told his disciples that on the third day he would rise again. But that's not what John wants to emphasize. No, he wants to point out that the morning he's going to describe for us began the first day of a brand new week, the first day of a brand new creation, in fact. She doesn't quite know it yet, but Mary awoke that morning to a whole new wonderful reality. She came to the tomb, John tells us, very early while it was still dark. Devoted Mary, last at the cross, and now up before dawn to be at the tomb of her dead Lord. But can we see in this darkness of this morning more than an indicator of what time it was? Can we see a picture of what's going on as well in Mary's heart and soul? Mary's Lord is dead. The one who had set her free, the one who had treated her and loved her like no other, her rock, her savior, dead. Mary's soul is in darkness. She came to the tomb in the dark to mourn. In that day, in that culture, the final dignity afforded to a dead person was that for three days, their loved ones would mourn at their tomb to honor them. Yet this morning, as Mary draws close, she realizes in the dim light that the stone sealing the entrance to the tomb has been removed. It's not there. And her heart, no doubt, starts racing, 
Panic rises within her. This is all wrong. Who did this? Are they still lurking in the darkness? So Mary flees the garden. She runs for the safety of the city. And she finds the leaders among Jesus' followers. And she blurts out her tragic discovery. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Mary's shocked. She's dismayed to find the tomb empty. She had not come to the tomb to celebrate Easter. She had come to mourn for a dead man. Though Jesus had promised to rise in three days, this had not registered with any of his disciples. They figured he was speaking in riddles and parables like he so often did. Mary assumes likely that Jesus' grave has been robbed. Grave robbing was a common occurrence at that time, enough so that the Roman emperor Claudius had issued a decree against it. Robbers would plunder graves to steal the expensive cloth and spices that corpses were wrapped in. Perhaps Mary thinks that's what has happened here, or perhaps she thinks the authorities have stolen the body. Either way, she feels utterly violated. Not only have they crucified her Lord, but now they have dishonored his grave and deprived her of the final consolation, deprived Jesus of the final honor, and Mary of at least being able to grieve and weep outside of the tomb. Mary pours this distressing news out to Peter and then to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. This is most likely John who wrote the gospel. And these two disciples, each hearing the news, they both run to the tomb and John gets there first. John stops outside. After all, Jewish law said that to touch a grave was to become unclean. So he stops outside. Meanwhile, Peter catches up and he barges right in. That's Peter, right? <laughs> and besides, what did it matter? What did he have to lose anymore? His king, his savior had been taken from him. What else did he have to live for? Peter stands in the empty tomb and then John comes and joins him inside. But let's pause for a minute and ask, why does John give us these details? Why add the almost playfully competitive detail, these are two young men, right, that John outran Peter to the tomb? I got there first. <laughs> Let me ask you another question. If you were making up a pious, mythical story about a great Savior rising from the dead to transform all things, would you add, oh, yeah, me and Peter ran to see it? And we had a race, and I won, but then Peter went in first, and then I followed him in. Oh, and then later Mary, she's outside and she's crying. No way! <laughs> I think the best explanation for this sort of detail is that it happened this way. As another New Testament scholar, C.H. Dodd, describes this story, there's something indefinably firsthand about it. Well, twice John tells us that in the tomb, first he and then Peter, they see the strips of linen that were enwrapping Jesus' body still lying there, and then the cloth that had been around Jesus' head next to it in its place. Why stress these details? Well, for two very important reasons. First, they prove that the grave was not robbed. When someone was buried in those days, their body was carefully wrapped with these expensive cloths, the body with one cloth like a mummy, 
and then the head with another. And these are the exact things the grave robbers would be going for. But here, these two men discover that the very treasures are still in the tomb. And if the authorities had stolen the body, would they have taken time to carefully unwrap the body and put the linen strips and the headcloth back where they had been? No, of course not. They would have taken the body as is and gotten out of there. Second, these grave cloths set apart what happened to Jesus from what happened to Lazarus a week or two earlier. If you know the story of Lazarus, he died and had been buried, but then Jesus had showed up and called him out of the tomb. And Lazarus had come out alive again, still wrapped up like a mummy in his grave clothes. Of course. But that's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus has come out leaving his grave clothes behind. Jesus had likely just sort of transmutated through the grave clothes, leaving them there right where they were in an empty heap. However it exactly happened, the point is that Jesus' resurrection is different than Lazarus's. Lazarus was resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. Lazarus was rescued from death only one day in the future to die again. In Jesus' case, something else happened. Jesus, as we find out later, passed through death into a new mode of being in which he can never die again. Resurrection is not coming back from the dead into this present order of existence, but it's passing through death to a whole new order of existence on the other side. Oh, what a beautiful morning. John and Peter both take in this scene, noting the grave clothes, and John believes. Is this another little friendly competition between John and Peter? Then in verse 9, we have the comment, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. In other words, like Mary, Peter and John had not been expecting resurrection. The empty tomb, when the disciples discover it, was not a source of joy but a source of confusion. It was, at first anyway, a crisis and a painful violation. They're trying to make sense of it. And at least some light is beginning to dawn in John's mind about what's going on here. But then he and Peter both go back home. Why? Were they still afraid? Peter afraid, John maybe experiencing some jumbled mix of faith and fear. We've all experienced that, right? We find out later in verse 19 that that evening, Jesus' followers were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. They're confused, they're uncertain, they're afraid. So Peter and John leave that morning. But Mary, who's returned now, stays at the tomb. Faithful Mary, brave Mary, last at the cross, first at the tomb, last at the tomb. Mary does not know where her Lord is, but she will stay at that last place she knew him to be, and there she weeps. She grieves. She's no doubt utterly confused, utterly lost, utterly violated and heartbroken. Peter and John were no help to her. 
So where is she to turn? Mary looks into the tomb, and now she sees two angels there, we're told. One sitting where Jesus' head had been and one at his feet. It's been noted that Jesus died between two criminals and rose between two angels. But where else in the Bible do we also see two angels? What about in the Old Testament, for those of you who know the Old Testament, where two cherubim flank the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant? That most holy place where atonement is made for sins, where God's glory rests, where God comes to be present and to meet with humans. Now, that reality finds expression in the risen Jesus. Now he takes away our sins. He is the glory of God himself. Through him, God is present to meet with us. Oh, what a beautiful morning. The angel, angels ask Mary, why are you weeping? Surely they know why. <laughs> but they're gently pointing out that Mary's tears do not flow in sync with the new reality. Then Mary becomes aware of another presence behind her. How long had that presence been there? He's always there before we become aware of him. Mary mistakes the man for the gardener. Perhaps her tears have blurred her vision. Perhaps her grief has blinded her to his living presence. Perhaps her expectations lead her astray. She's still looking for a dead body. Or is it that Jesus being transformed looks different now? Yet in a way, Mary is also right. This man is the gardener. Again, for those of you who know the, the opening story of the Old Testament, the story of creation, he's the gardener walking in the garden in the cool of the morning on the first day of a brand new creation. Well, this man, like the angels, asks Mary, why are you weeping? He knows. He always knows why we're weeping. But he asks, inviting us to express it to him. And then he adds, who are you looking for? It's a searching question. Who or what are you looking for? Mary was looking for the wrong thing. For a dead rabbi, a body, a corpse. But God was about to give her so much more. Mary answers, if you've carried him away, tell me where I can, or where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary's love may be misguided and confused, but it's deep and it's genuine. She longs to be with him, to care for him, even if he's dead. Then the moment happens where reality breaks through her darkness. Jesus calls her by name, Mary. Wouldn't you love to hear how Jesus said her name? Earlier, Jesus had promised, we sang about the sheep, I am the good shepherd. The sheep listen to my voice. I call my own sheep by name and lead them out. Notice what awakens Mary to this new Easter reality. Not his face, not his touch, not, but rather his voice calling her name. And that's the way it is for us. It's the voice of the shepherd, the personal, loving 
voice of Jesus calling our name that finally breaks through our darkness and makes his wonderful presence known. Now that Jesus is raised, we live in a new reality in which we don't touch him or see his face, not yet at least, but we do hear his voice. We know him by his voice and he speaks to us. He knows us by name. That's why we read and meditate on this book, why we listen to sermons, why we pray to him. Well, Mary is overjoyed. Rabboni, my teacher, she exclaims. And then evidently she throws her arms around him, wouldn't you? (laughs) I'd like to do that this morning. Because Jesus says to her, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Why can't Mary keep holding on to Jesus? Two reasons. First, as we've just seen, now that Jesus has died and risen, we relate to him in a new way. No longer do we touch him and see him in flesh and blood. Also, notice he calls his disciples brothers, and that Greek word includes sisters too. This is the first time that Jesus calls his followers brothers and sisters. For the most part, he had called them disciples, students. Then on the Thursday night before he died, he called them friends. But now he calls us brothers and sisters. Why? Because he says, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Wow, through his death and resurrection, Jesus has opened up to us a new reality, a new relationship with God as our Father. Up to this point, Jesus' relationship with his Father had been holy ground, uniquely shared by him and God. He was God's only Son, and he and the Father shared an intimacy and a love unlike any other. Yet now, Jesus offers that his God is our God, and his Father is our Father, and we are his brothers and sisters. Now, as a result of his death on the cross and his rising again, Jesus is inviting us, in other words, into the relationship, the union God the Son shares with God the Father. What a beautiful morning. But there's a second reason Mary can't hold on to Jesus. And that is that this news is so good, it must be shared. I love what commentator Dale Bruner says about this. He says, Mary is a person who wants to be as close to Jesus as possible. But if all Mary does is hold on to him, then she has overdone a good thing. The Christian faith is not just Jesus and me. It's also Jesus and mission. Jesus and other people. And so Mary runs her heart bursting with joy, the first human being sent with the good news. Jesus sends her to tell the others who will in turn tell the whole world that Jesus, who was crucified, is very much alive and a new day has dawned for the whole world. Ladies, whatever you think the Bible teaches about to whom women are or are not to teach God's word, don't 
let anyone tell you that you can't do what Jesus sends Mary here to do. To proclaim the good news that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is the risen Lord. Later, Jesus will send the apostles to share the good news. Apostle literally means sent one, messenger. But before Jesus sends these sent ones, Jesus sends Mary to the sent ones. She's a messenger to the messengers, an apostle to the apostles. Jesus sends Mary Magdalene with good news. Preacher June Mil- uh, Bruce Milne comments, As Mary held on to her Lord, there were a group of broken men and women no great distance away who had as much need as Mary to know of his rising. Milne continues, Tragically, over the centuries, the Christian community has shown a far greater interest in sitting at Jesus' feet, holding on to him amid the comfort of his presence, than in going out into the world to share the good news of the risen Lord with broken, needy hearts who have as valid a claim to know him as we. No wonder Jesus sent Mary to tell the good news to the other disciples. And then later, he would send them to tell the same news to the whole world. And so that great game of tag your it has begun, and it's been going on ever since. And so the good news has been sent to us, and we in turn get to sh- are sent to share it with others. As Milne concludes, Easter is gospel, and it belongs to the whole world. What's the good news of Easter? Well, in its very simplest form, the message we share is the same one Mary shared. Jesus is alive. I've met him. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Jesus is risen, and he is here. May we enjoy his presence. May we celebrate him and the new reality he brings. And may we spread the news to the whole world. Happy Easter.